Blog Talk Radio. I just have a desire to be great. You know, that, that's one of the main things. The fact that it's another man on the other side of the ring that wants to hurt me. I told you, all of my critics, I told you all that I was the greatest of all time. He can bring the pressure. He can box. I'm a true champion. I'm willing to go to his turkey. I'm a step one. I'm a crusher. Y'all can mark my words to this. I'm a crusher. He's a C-plus fighter. I'm an A-plus fighter because I'm a dominator. This guy is flat for these swing while I'm not worried about who his trainer is because the trainer can't get in there and fight for him already mentally, physically, because I'm a team like he's a C-plus fighter. I'm a dominator. I'm a dog in this fight. I'm the best ever. I'm the most brutal and vicious and most ruthless champion that's ever been. There's no one to stop me. Lynch is a conqueror. No, I'm Alexander. He's no Alexander. I'm the best ever. What's up, what's up everybody and welcome to the 17th episode of the Standing 8 podcast. That is right, 17th episode of our podcast. Uh, We want to thank all of our listeners out there, everyone who has supported us. We have already come a long way. Um, Once again, I, I did say 17 episodes and there's a lot of work that goes behind the scenes to be able to get to this point. I don't want to bore you with all the uh, logistics, but let's go ahead and start talking about some good stuff uh, revolving around boxing. I got Tommy Rush on the uh, line. I got Courtney Tanner, my co-host as well. And we've got a lot of great things for you tonight, including a special guest, uh, the one and only Rick Glazer, who's going to be on soon. Um, For those who don't know who he is, then you probably don't follow boxing. But for those who are on, you're probably as excited as I am. Um, he's a boxing expert, worked with like 36 current and former champions in 19 years. He's got a great body of work. Uh, he has worked with guys like Larry Holmes and the likes of Roy Jones. And I believe he's currently working with Don King as we speak. Um, and he is obviously a staple in the boxing industry. Courtney, what's up, man? Tommy, you guys there? What's going on? What's going on? Hey, blessed. Blessed to be back on again and uh, be talking to Grace for the boxing. Absolutely. Tommy, how was your weekend? Oh, man, my weekend is busy as ever. Y'all, y'all know how I do on the weekends, man. I get it in, so we make it happen. But it's been, a, it's been a great one. We had some great boxing and everything going on and ready to talk about it. Excellent. Hey, Courtney, I really want to thank you, uh, you know, for, for talking to Rick and getting him on the show. Um, I mean, that's great uh, for, you know, I, I love Rick because he has a rugged style. He comes with nothing but the truth. He tells you as it is and how it is. So it's going to be a pleasure to have him on. Um, I, I'm going to patch D-Rock. D-Rock, you in? D-Rock, you're in? I am here. I am here. I'm here. Guys. Good, good, good. Um, make your presence known. Uh, are you excited like I am having Rick on a show? 
I mean, it's an honor and a privilege, and uh, I can't wait to get into these discussions with you and uh, everyone else tonight. So let's get the ball rolling. Absolutely. We've got a lot of good topics today. We're going to be talking about uh, the recent fight that happened uh, between Liam Smith and, and Jamie uh, Munguia and his unanimous decision over him for the 154 title. Um, obviously, we're going to talk about Hurd versus Charlo, um, uh, Usyk being dominant over uh, Murat. Um, that was a great fight. Um, and potentially Usyk now maybe going to uh, heavyweight. There's been a discussion uh, of that or potentially fighting Tony Ballou. Uh, Manny Pacquiao's uh, recent fight against Lucas Matias. Um, and, and a couple other things that we're going to be talking about, especially uh, the recent news of Danny Garcia versus Sean Porter. For those who that, that, that don't know, that's official for September 9th. Um, that is a fight that potentially a lot of us that are on right now are probably going to meet up and watch. I'm sure some of you guys are going to want to watch that fight. Um, has, it's going to be at the Barclays or MSG? Anybody know? So I, I thought they were discussing that the fight might end up being in Vegas. I know when they had their little uh, in-ring dust-up, they were talking uh, about Vegas, and Danny Garcia was saying that Sean Porter's from Ohio, that he's not Vegas, and Porter, Porter was saying that he's been in Vegas for multiple years, and that's his home now. So I could even see that fight being a, a, a Vegas matchup. Yeah, I could agree. I could agree. I would love for it to be in New York because obviously it's only hopping to skip away from me. Um, and I think that uh, New York is probably a great uh, location and venue for them. But, I, I mean, I can't discount Vegas. It is a big fight, um, especially now. Uh, a lot of people want to see the winner of that fight potentially take on uh, Errol or, or, or potentially take on Errol Spence or Bud Crawford um, or, or, or even now Mikey Garcia because Mikey Garcia has been expressing um, his uh, – you know his his like to fight Arrow, so that'd be uh, that that'd be great to see. Uh, but let's go ahead. And let's analyze the fight from this past weekend with Liam Smith uh, and, and Jamie uh, Courtney. What did you think of the fight? Do you think that the you know did you predict uh, Liam Smith losing in the fashion that he lost? Did you think that was the fight that you were going to see? Tell us about your predictions. Uh, well, it, the um, it's all, it, it was announced earlier that the 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 Danny Garcia and Sean Porter fight has already been confirmed for the mm-hmm. Barclays Center on September 8th. So for our East Coast listeners, the East Coast the East Coast faithful who uh, who are patching into us, Danny Nate, uh, that you know basically it's a uh, it, it's going to be a treat for y'all. So um, and uh, as I was uh, I was also read that uh, David Benavides is uh, expected to be the co-feature on that uh, on that card. Um, nice. As far as the Mungia, as far as the Mungia and Smith fight. Uh, I caught that on replay. I was driving back home from Georgia. Um, but um, it was, uh, you know, the fight went about as I expected it to go. Um, I, I really didn't think that was going to be a uh, a real dominant performance for Mingia in that um, Smith is a game dude. Um, he's pretty durable. Yeah, and I, I, think with, uh, I think with Smith, uh, a lot of people, it's easy for them to discount Smith based on the Canelo fight, but um, Canelo he had that he had that was one of those performances from Canelo when he fought Smith that that was he made that look a little bit easier than it actually was. Um, Canelo actually had to work systematically work and break Smith down from that point. And uh, if you look at both those fights in contrast, because I think that's what most people were doing to see how Mungia was going to deal with Smith. 
um, in comparison or in parallel to how Canelo did, um, that was you know that was going to be the eye test for a lot of people. And so I think uh, I think a lot of people, and particularly casuals, um, were disappointed with the performance. And uh, you know that now their assessment of Munigia is uh, there's you know he's kind of you know it was like ah he's hyped there you know he's not the finished product there's something missing there but I mean I think for him being at the level he's at he dealt with Smith um, pretty much as expected and Smith came in and was as what about as durable as he could be uh, expected be expected to be you know the difference um, was that Munigia and this fight against Smith fought a relevant real deal junior middleweight as opposed to his last fight where he fought Saddam Saddam Ali. Ali. Yep. He was fight, yeah, he was fighting a blown up welterweight. Yeah, and guys, I and uh, I agree with that. Just, uh I just wanna add to that a little bit. You know, we're we're using the uh, uh Canelo Alvarez barometer to kinda judge uh uh Munguia's performance, but we gotta remember they faced Munguia um respectively, Liam Smith uh, at different points in their career, Munguia's biggest opponent prior to that was obviously Saddam Ali, which was his first uh, major title shot. And, you know, Canelo was used to seeing different looks and uh, had already faced a lot of game fighters. So for Munguia to actually step up and, and you know, score a knockdown, he, he's proven that although raw, he can hang in there with guys who have better experience and, uh, and uh, you know, good chops. Uh, Liam Smith put on a good performance as Courtney mentioned, against uh, Canelo Alvarez as well. Correct. I think that what's impressive with uh, Munguia is the fact that I think the kid's, what, 21? He's not even 22 years old yet. Um, yeah, he's yeah, so he, a very young fighter. And if you look at his resume, he's got two pretty good guys. And, and, and I get it. Ali was, I mean, that was a, a size mismatch, uh, obviously, in uh, Munguia's favor. Uh, but he's got now, you know, he's got Ali uh, in his resume and he's got Liam Smith in his resume. So, I mean, transitioning from that, uh, moving forward, what's next for Munguia? Like, where do you see him going from here? Who do you think he's going to be fighting? He's got star power because he, he is from Tijuana, Mexico. Um, he's got star power and he's got a lot of years left in his boxing career. So, Courtney, where do you see this kid in the next three to four years? Who do you see him fighting? Um, you know what? I think I you know I would like to see him moved at a steady pace where he can t- continue to learn and grow and develop. I do not think that's going to happen with the uh, with the money potential and um, just with the uh, with the way things are going promotionally and how the networks are lining up and uh, how things are going on TV. Because the thing is, um, Oscar, you know he's got promotional. He, he you know he optioned him for this fight because he beat his guy, Saddam Ali, in the last fight. So typically, in order to make those deals, the, uh, the more established promoter, you know, gets an option or two off the fighter that upsets his guy or takes the, you know, the belt from his guy. So basically, Oscar's in the driving seat or the driver's seat with Munguia now as far as, you know, who he, go, who he goes up against and what networks and what, you know, what, um, you know what, I'm saying, what, uh, what avenues we're going to see him on. And with that, you know, when you, when you look at what ESPN is doing right now, when you look, you know, when you look at the, uh, the steady uh, stream of um, the talent and good fights that Showtime has consistently, and when you look at the, the, the zone deal that Eddie Hearn just signed, um, HBO is kind of on the short end, you know what I'm saying, as far as talent and viable fights that they can put on. So with that being said, you know, HBO, they're two big guys right now who they have on the network 
are Canelo and Triple G. You know, so with the you know with the the pool of fighters that they can go up against increasingly shrinking and being lost to Showtime, potentially the Zone in the future and uh, ESPN, they're going you know saying there's going to be a lot of pressure on Oscar from HBO to put Mungia in there against you know the uh, the winner of the um, of the Canelo and uh, and Triple G fight. So I mean honestly, I think that's who we see him up against. You can't say he's really getting fed to the winner um, of those guys because I mean we've seen the, the kid can punch, the the kid is big, you know the kid has ring presence that's beyond his years right now. Um, but I mean, when we back off the sensationalism of the two wins he's, he scored in front of a national audience on a big network, network like HBO, we got to take a deep breath and ask ourselves, is he really ready to hang with powerful, athletic, and intelligent fighters like Triple G and, um, uh, you know, and or Canelo? And uh, I'm thinking right now, no, he's, he, he's not at that level yet. But we're we're gonna see him at that level, and how he performs that, that's that's gonna be remain to be seen. Interesting, uh, interesting. You D-Rock, guys, you're about to put two cents in. Yeah, I'm sorry. Do you guys really think that they're gonna move him out of uh, out of out of 54? Oh, the way away. I see, you know, yeah, you know, uh, the way I see them placing Mexican boxers, you have Ramirez at 68, Canelo basically right uh, being the star power for Mexico at 60. You can. Possibly place Munguia as their face at 54 with Mikey Garcia trading. You know, Mike Garcia, Ramirez, Orozco, all all between 40 and 47, kind of showing face for the Mexican uh, community the way he is because there's, there are a lot of matchups there. And, uh, you know, I just don't see any any matchup between the winner of Triple G Canelo, um, especially with now the likes of Trip, uh, Billy Joe Saunders and Demetrius Andrade. Uh, matching up and that fight being in the works uh, immediately right after, in my opinion. Well, the, the thing is, the, th- the thing that makes that tricky, though, is that fight is now on a different platform. Eddie, Eddie Hearn has, uh, he you know, his side, they made a deal with Frank Warren, and that fight's going to be on the new Zone platform. So it's going to be, it, it's, it, it's going to be very hard to see how that's going to link up, you know, say between Zone and HBO and you know, with, with with that much money in the deal, I I I don't think there's going to be I don't think that's going to be easy bridge to cross, um, especially with the zone and Eddie Hearn trying to absorb fighters and get as much talent on uh, on that network, and with Mugia still being promotionally aligned with Golden Boy and them putting uh, putting fights on HBO. So um, I, I, I honestly, there's a lot of good matchups in the vicinity for Mugia. But as far as fights that can be made, there's actually really not many. And the fights that can be made, that's gonna go, you know, that's gonna drift on the HBO. I mean, I can see a scenario where Mungia goes up against like a mandatory challenger or a former titleist or a second tier opponent as a way to build him up. Um, while you know, what I'm saying tri- Triple G or Canelo maybe fight again or fight other people, you know, fight other people or fight, you know, take care of their mandatories that they'll absorb with the uh, the unification of the belts and whatnot. But um, I mean, as far as Mugia fighting a Jared Hurd, as far as Mugia fighting um, one of the Charlos, Hello. I just yep. I don't see it. Right. 
I, 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 don't, I, don't, I just, I, you know, I would like to see those fights, but I'm a realist. I don't see how those fights are viable as far as being made and being presented to the audience on television. Well, let's, let's talk about that right now. Let's, how, how does he measure? Let's say he does fight Hurd. Let's say he does fight uh, Charlo. How does he measure up against both those guys? Because I, me personally, I think, he actually, I think he's got a great chance of beating both, but I do think he beats Hurd. I don't know about Charlo, but I think he beats Hurd. I'd love to see him against her, and that's who I was going to say. I mean, just, just the energy that he brings, that motor. I mean, like, like Courtney said, it may not happen, but, you know, let's, we can play fantasy land a little bit here. And, and I think that the motor that they both have, that will make for a banger. I mean, the, the size that, that Hurd has, the way that he works, the way he goes down to the body on him. I, I mean, I, I think that would be a, a challenging fight for, for Miguel, but – I mean, it's one that he that he could possibly pull off. I mean, he he's got some he's got some in his arsenal at a very young age. So I'm I'm excited to see uh, who they would like to put him up against next. I agree. I think it's I, agree. I mean. It, Courtney, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry about that. Go ahead. No, it's it's okay. I just you know that's my take on it. You know, on a theoretical between Mungia and Hurd, I think that's a definite fifty-fifty matchup. Um, I I say I think they both they're they're both come forward. They're both uh, they're both relentless. Like Tommy said, they both got a I think that stamina. Both got good motors. Um, you know, on paper you might be able to give a slight advantage to Mungia because he's been through less wars. Um, he's got a little less wear and tear, and he's a little younger. Um, but I think with I think with Hurd too, the thing that we're kind of discounting as uh, you know, say as we analyze Hurd in this fight is I think somewhere in there, there's a better boxer than he's presented. Um, you know, what I'm saying that he hasn't really gotten the opportunity to display. But I mean, I I, th- I think with Mugia, I don't think he as the you know the boxer. I think I think that's in there too. I think he has he has potential. I just don't think that I think that's further from being developed than it is with Hurd. How about Charlo? Well, Charlo, with Charlo, I gotta get you know out the gate. I would have to give Charlo the advantage in that fight in a head in a head to head against Mugia, uh, simply because of with Charlo, we've seen the power, we've seen the speed, we've seen the athleticism. But with Charlo, we've also seen him stay the course over twelve rounds and uh, and you know what I'm saying use his noodle in there and outbox and outthink guys. So I, I think with that and what we've seen from Charlo, and against the level of competition we've seen Charlo do that against, I would, I, you know, I would out, out the gate, I would have to give Charlo the advantage over McGee in a matchup. It, where, where to me the, where to me the fight or the matchup between her and McGee can get interesting is that they are essentially the same size, and where we've seen her shine is he's able to break down guys who are outboxing him and uh, connecting on him. And uh, Munguia possesses the type of power that could stop him in his tracks. You know, uh, Hurd, Hurd has the ability to break down guys who are three to four inches smaller than him and don't have the same type of power to keep him off. So that would be a matchup that would I would be interested in and kind of intrigued by. Uh, they just operate at different uh, uh, speeds. I, I, and I, I, can that. That and I, I think... I think with Hurd, we haven't really seen anybody who has the power to keep him honest. And uh, that's something Mungia definitely possesses. I, I agree. And I was going to say, I actually think Mungia knocks uh, Hurd out. I don't think Hurd has, I don't, I don't think Hurd has the stamina 
to fight a guy that's as big and as strong, if not stronger, than him. I think that he gets beat ultimately in this fight, especially against a 21-year-old who's got – he's 21 years old, but he has – he's got experience already under his belt. It's not like this kid has 10 or 15 fights. If I'm not mistaken, he's fought 30 times. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, he gets, numbers? yeah. yeah 30 yeah. times. And I think he's got 25, 26 knockouts. You know, well, so, well, if he gets beat, well, if he gets beaten, it's, be, it's if he makes the mistake of allowing Munguia to connect the way uh, the past few opponents have on him as well. Okay, I, I can get that point. I get that point. But I, I think that with bigger fighters, I think that you see is that um, it's almost like that Triple G effect. If the guy's hitting you and it's not hurting you, I think that you're more, as a fighter, you're more susceptible to allowing him to punch you. Uh, whereas mm-hmm. if he is actually hurting you, like you see, for example, you know, just off track a little bit, like Triple G. We've watched him against, uh, I think it was Monroe, if I'm not mistaken. Monroe was hitting him, hitting him, hitting him. And he just would allow it, right? He, let, he would leave himself open. Right, because he just thought that he wouldn't get not, you know, he wasn't hurting him. Thing, same thing with Kel Brook, right? But against David Lemieux, where he knows he's got real knockout power, he's a lot more careful, more cautious, mm. more guarded, you know. So I think that's, uh, I think that's what plays into effect. I think I got Rick Glacer on. Let me put him on. Hello, Rick. Are is that you? It's me. All right, Lockie. How are you? <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on the well. show. Yeah, I got Courtney is good. and Tommy on here right now with you, and, and uh, we all got a bunch of great questions uh, that we want to ask you. Who, who, and, uh, who's on Courtney and who, and who else? And Tommy. Courtney and Tommy, and we have uh, Daniel Pena as well. Okay, very good. Hello, gentlemen. Good evening. How's it going? Thank, thank you for joining us. Pleasure I'm, to have you. I'm, 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 honored, I'm honored to join you, gentlemen. Well, we're we're honored to have you on, especially a guy with your Thank expertise. You. Uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You've been in boxing uh, probably as old as I am. I'm not going to reveal how old I am, but you've been in boxing for about two decades now. You worked with guys like um, Larry Holmes. Boxing, I've been in boxing uh, 27 years. I started in '91, and uh, it's uh, it's been you know up and downs, but uh, you know I'm a survivor and. Uh, it uh, it's it's it has served me well. Let's put it that way. I've met people that I never would have met before if it wasn't for boxing. You know, people like Don King, Bob Arum, uh, Donald Trump. You know, before he was president, of course. Um, you know, and it's just served me very well. You know, no complaints. I've had a good. I've had a lot. Of, I could write a book. It's been a great experience. No question about it. Absolutely. And and is is something like that in your path uh, as far as writing a book? in the future for, you know, writing um, boxing? I'm, I'm, I'm going to write a book, but it's not going to be a tell-all book about the business. It'll be more or less funny stories. Um, you know, my experience is more, it's not going to be like a tell-all, like, you know, expose this or expose this guy, that guy. It's, it's going to, it would be a tell, it would be a book of like funny stories, funny happenings and, and stuff like that. I, I, I once told a fighter he was fighting overseas and I, he says, "How am I getting there?" He says, "You got to swim." He goes, "I'm I'm out of that deal. I don't swim." <laughs> so I mean, I've had I've had a lot. And, and he was serious. I've had a lot of funny. Told a guy, um, he was getting twenty five thousand for a fight. It's ten percent to me. He says, "How much is that?" I said, "Twenty thousand for you and five thousand me." He says, "Okay." 
So <laughs> I've had a lot of I've I've had a lot of very funny experiences that could definitely go into a book. And uh I mean just absolutely like really, really funny stories. And uh you know, you know, especially the, the years I was very social, uh, very closely associated with Don King, um, Don himself from 2003 to 2016 when I ended up getting the cancer. We sort of like drifted apart. He's not; he hasn't done any shows in four years. He's basically Don's basically retired. He just never told anybody. And, um, Correct. That's that's really what it is. And uh, but you know, I had a great run with Don. Don's a, Don is a great guy, one-on-one. If you, I, only, I will say this about Don. Don is very, very, very misunderstood. And what I mean by that is if you're loyal to Don and you're earnest and honest with Don, he'll go to the wall for you, whether it's financially, uh, whether it's, um, you know, whatever the situation is, he'll do it for you. The problem with Don is, that once you try to screw Don over, then Don bites back, okay? And 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 the people say, "Oh, Don screwed me." No, you want to screw Don first. That's how that happens. You know, the Mike Tyson thing—that's a complete, like, completely misunderstanding what happened. And I'm going to tell you what happened there. Don King, can you turn that off, please? Uh, Don King, and um, and Mike Tyson. Uh, handled one billion dollars, one billion. Wow. Okay, and that's some serious money. And we're talking about only from '95 to '97. We're not talking about uh, before he went to prison. We're talking well, once he got out in '95, and until they split up in '97, they handled a billion dollars. There was fourteen million dollars missing. Don sued him for, I mean, uh, Mike sued him for $150 million, and the actual amount that was missing in question was $14 million, unaccounted for. Now, gentlemen, let's do the math. Let's take $1 billion handle and take $14 million into that. That's 0.0014% that was missing. Okay? Wow. Now, now, that's a very small amount of money, and that money that money wasn't stolen. It was what they call lost in the shuffle. So, in other words, what that was was that when Don went when when Mike went to prison, Don had an office in New York. When okay, a big office in New York. When 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 Mike got out of prison in '95, Don was relocated to Florida already for a couple of years, and then the original office in Fort Lauderdale then then went, then moved to Deerfield Beach. Well, what happened was Mike comes out of prison. He wants Don to have a New York office. Well, Don says to Mike, Mike, I don't need a New York office. I don't need to pay New York State income tax, a corporate tax. I don't need to pay New York State a personal tax. I live in Florida. My office is in Florida. There's no state corporate tax in Florida. There's no state uh, personal income tax in Florida. The real estate taxes are cheaper, and I'm saving, you know, millions of dollars a year in taxes. He says, listen, Mike says to him, to Don, you know, you get in a New York City office, you take it out. You, you know, I'll pay you back for that out of my out of my purses. He says, okay. Well, it's costing him seventy five thousand dollars a month for rent and to staff the office, which actually in New York City is quite cheap. You know, you guys know New York City prices. 
And, but to remember, this is 1995, 96, 97. Now it's even higher. Okay, well, anyways, in the meantime, uh, they're together 30 months. Once Don gets out of, once uh, he gets out of prison, everything's fine. Well, let's multiply 75,000 times 30 months. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. That's like $2.5 million right there. Okay, that, okay, you know, that, of course, Mike said, I didn't know nothing about that. You know, it was all stuff that he, he, he that, what's his name, uh, Tyson calls uh, uh, Don up in the middle of the night. says, first thing in the morning, I want you to wire 200000 to some woman that he had a kid with. Some just strange deal. Okay, fine. You know, unaccounted for. Don just wires in the money. It's not in Mike's name. It's in the woman's name. You know, here's the account number, wire the money. Okay, so this was all stuff. And remember, they had a father and son relationship. So th- there was a lot of, like, you know, here's 200000 in a briefcase. Oh, you know, Mike's out for the night. Boom. You know, Mike went to the Versace shop. It was 400000 when he first got out of prison after he signed that deal with the uh, MGM with Don. You know, it was 400000 he spent at, at the form shops at Caesars, 200000 alone in Versace. And in the meantime is, all this was unaccounted for. So in the meantime is, what happened was, there was $14 million missing. Did Don King rob uh, Mike Tyson? Absolutely not. Okay, there's not even a question he didn't. But now you're going to ask, well, why did he settle? Because what happened was, and, and, and this is a fact, okay, it's David and Goliath. Don's the guy with the horrible reputation, okay? Uh, you know, oh, he's a mean guy. He's this. He's a gangster. He was in jail for murder. Okay, they're going to pin something on him for $10, $20, $25 dollars just because it's him, plus all the legal fees, plus all the aggravation. And and, and and no offense to anybody on this phone right now, but $14 million is a lot more to the five of us than it is to Don King. So Don King wrote him a check for $14 million and got rid of the whole situation. But what, did he steal from Mike Tyson? Absolutely not. It was, it was money that was lost in the shuffle of handling a billion dollars together. And that's basically what it is. Now, what else you guys want to talk about tonight? Well, it seems that Mike is still upset because uh, there was <laughs> a recent event, uh, I think a boxing Hall of Fame event right, that yeah, happened I know, I know. Yeah, about a month water. ago. That's a water, yeah. Mike's yeah. not upset about that. You know you know what Mike's upset about? Mike's upset, Mike's upset because he blew his own money. And, and Mike was this, been disgruntled about that. And he feels that he should have made more money now that he looks back upon it. Because everybody told him, like Shelly Finkel and everybody he worked with, after all, you didn't get enough money for your fight. You only get $25 million. Come on. $25 million, though. Remember, we did not have the distribution capabilities in 1995, 6, and 7 that we have today. We didn't have, uh, we didn't have as much worldwide television. We didn't have the Internet. The Internet just started in 95. Nobody used it. I mean, it's a different world today. And we didn't have the media outlets we have now. I mean, back then, just your major newspapers had, had reporters. There was no Internet boxing reporters. That didn't start for about five years till about night, till about, uh, about, about 2000. Correct. Now that we had the occasional guy writing. I mean, let, let me tell you something. 
he was paid very handsomely, guaranteed $25 million plus a piece of the profits. And, 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 you know, people say, well, God King made $500 million on you and this stuff, and, you know, and then he gets pissed off. You know what? He negotiated the deal. He had a lawyer, okay? He had people around him, okay? It's just, you know what? It's sour grapes, okay? Yeah, I mean, I mean... He caused, you know, it, it, it's like it's like the the story about about the guy who sold it. He bought a stock for two dollars. He sold it for four dollars. He had a hundred thousand dollars. He doubled his money. Then a week later, it's twelve dollars. God damn! He's yelling, "Look at this! I would have held on for another week. I would have made eight hundred more." Th- oh my god! You know, now he's mad. He's pissed off. No, you grabbed the hundred grand. Run, run with it. Don't be, never be upset with what you don't have. Be happy with what you have. That's all there is to it. Absolutely, absolutely. I definitely agree. Now, Rick, you've been obviously in boxing, as you said, 27 years. You've worked with a lot, a lot of people. Um, I'm sure you've got a lot of stories to tell. Uh, In 27 years, who is the most interesting person? um, I wouldn't say person in boxing, but let's say, the most interesting boxer you've ever come across in terms of personality? Lennox Lewis, by far. I'll tell you why. He did not have fighter mentality outside the ring. He was just a nice guy, a gentleman, well-spoken, a true sportsman, okay? And inside the ring, he was a stone killer. And I think that that's an unbelievable balance. In other words, Tyson acted like a fighter outside the ring. You understand what I'm saying? Most fighters act like a fighter outside the ring. As great as Lennox Lewis Mm -hmm. was in the ring, and I consider him the third greatest heavyweight of all time, Uh, believe it or not, ahead of Ali, I know you guys will think I'm crazy, Joe Lewis, number one, number two, number two, Holmes, number uh, number three, Lennox Lewis, four, Ali. Okay? But Here's what I'm going to say about Lennox Lewis. Do you realize that the only brush he had over all those years in boxing was when Mike Tyson bit him, bit him on the leg to, you know, at that press conference? That's the only brush he's ever had. He was shaking hands. He was hugging people, kissing babies, signing autographs woefully for people, and just a total gentleman. I want to tell you guys a story that you guys will really like think, wow. I was at the MGM in the, literally in the middle of the night with Lennox Lewis, just him and I talking. And this was after he got knocked out by Oliver McCall and before he regained the heavyweight championship for the world in 97. Okay? In between. And he was, he was the number one contender for a while. Don King bought him off a few times with with 400,000 every fight and a Range Rover or a Jaguar. Okay. Well, anyways, we were sitting there privately, him and I, and he's trying to avoid the public. He's got that nice um, English cap on like the golfers wear and stuff. You know, I don't know what you call those caps, but those, you know, they're, they're real nice, nice looking hats. I even have one. I don't even know what they're called. Got it. Got so it. anyways, so, anyways, we're sitting there minding his whole business, and a, and a guy comes up, and he says, "Listen, Lennox, uh, Lennox Lewis, he says, not even a boxing fan is safe, 
okay? He walks up and he says, I'm an autograph collector. And he says, I don't have any boxers autographs and I want yours. He stood up, asked the guy his name, and not only signed one thing for him, just Lennox Lewis. He says, what's your name? The guy says, Scott. Scott, it's a pleasure to meet you. Okay, Lennox Lewis, and he dates it. Two separate pieces. He didn't even ask for it. He just he told me he was an autograph collector. I was like, I'm, sir, I, I might resell this. And then he says, nice to meet you, shook his hand. Literally, and the guy talked to him for about 10 minutes. He answered all his questions. He sat down. He said, I, I said, Len, that was really nice of you. He said, can I say something to you, Rick? I go, what's that? He goes, it's people like him that get me paid. Wow. That's what he said to me. And he was so classy, shook the guy's hand, patted him on his shoulder. I mean, a complete gentleman. Now, on the flip side. Steakhouse at the MGM while he's the heavyweight champion of the world, okay? No WBO, I should say, but, you know, not, after he lost to uh, Holyfield in the second fight, and then he, was, he beat uh, Herbie Hyde, he's in the MGM in the steakhouse wanting $10 a piece for autographs while he's the heavyweight champion of the world, literally going around table to table soliciting people to give him $10 for his autograph. Not even people <laughs> asking for it. He's soliciting people. Wow. Okay? So this is why I'd say Lennox Lewis is, to me, the ultimate, ultimate guy because he was so deadly in the ring, a killer in the ring, outside the ring, he was a completely different guy. You'd never know he was a fighter. He did not have fighter mentality, just plain and simple. That's the part that, that, that Emmanuel Stewart instilled in him, because he was before that he was two nights, even in the ring. And then, and then, then he got with, uh, with, uh, with, 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 uh, uh, Emmanuel and Emmanuel not only straightened out his balance, his, his coordination between his hand and his feet and his head and his shoulders, but he instilled that killer instinct in him. And Emmanuel and I were very close. I used to supply all the sparring partners for Lennox Lewis, uh, you know, when he, when Emmanuel trained him, and we used to talk for like hours on the phone. And, you know, we, Emmanuel and I were very friendly, so it's this kind of situation that I got a lot of insight into Lennox. Uh, not only knowing him, but, um, you know, basically from Emmanuel, too. But I want to tell you one more Lennox Lewis story. Fought as an amateur here in Buffalo, 1986. He hits a guy named Mike Chandra so hard they fought in the basement with one of those false ceilings in a, in a what are they called, some kind of like an Elks Club or whatever it's called. I can't remember the name of the place. It's, I know where it's located. I just can't remember. It doesn't matter. He hits him with an uppercut. He goes right through the false ceiling. He comes back down, and Lennox hits him again with an uppercut. Knocks him out. Lennox Lewis is literally on his knees uh, attending to the guy with the, with the ringside doctor. Oh, wow. Okay. Class act. Yep. Yeah. Class yeah. Act. This, is in, this, is, this is two years before the Olympics. But this is the kind of guy that he is. Do you understand? I mean, he's just an unusual type of guy. And you know what? We don't see too many of those those in boxing. Very, very, very rare. So absolutely not. Other couple other guys. Couple other, other guys have a couple of questions for you. I think uh, Daniel sure. Pena. I think you want to ask yeah. a question, right? 
Rick, Rick, thank you for joining us. Um, uh, I run into Ronaldo Snipes a lot in New York City at some of the cigar lounges, and uh, he's obviously most famous for fighting and knocking down your close friend, Larry Holmes. And uh, when I've spoken to him, he raves about the type of uh, person that Larry Holmes is outside of the ring. Uh, would you care to speak on that a little bit? Um. I would say Larry Holmes is a great person outside the ring. He's done a lot for uh, his hometown of Easton, Pennsylvania, which is basically before he came along, crapping of almost everything. And he really raised the, uh, you know, the property values in the town by buying old buildings and rehabbing them, and you know, making office buildings and apartments out of them. Um, he did. He's done a lot of good things for a lot of people. Larry's problem is three three things. And the reason why he's not not as popular as he should be, uh, like with autograph signing, because of the thing what he said about Rocky Marciano, he couldn't hold my jock my my jock strap, which was really really a bad taste. Okay, horrible. Okay, and it would have been it, it would have been bad taste whether whether Marciano or not was white or black. It was a bad taste. He, if he would have said it about Joe Lewis, it would have been just as bad. You know, because you don't say anything negative about iconic figures, you just don't do that. Okay, Correct. you just—it's un—you know—it's like somebody saying something about Joe DiMaggio that's bad. I mean, so help that person. You know what I'm saying? Or 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 Yogi Berra. You know, some of these iconic sports figures, you just can't say things about, it, especially in a competitive sport like boxing, where you're talking about another guy. Well, you're not talking about. Another team, oh, you know, your your Yankees and oh, the Red Sox, oh, they only won, you know, one world title all those years, and you know, we won twenty seven and all that stuff. Okay, fine, that's what team sports. Now you're talking about one individual, and you're talking about saying, hey, you know, he couldn't carry my jockstrap. Very bad taste. That's number one. Number two is the hardest thing you can do is follow a legend, and he followed Ali. Now. Forget that Larry Holmes wasn't Ali as far as personality goes, okay? And he wasn't nearly as good looking. He didn't have that kind of build. He was built. He basically looked like a, you know, he he didn't have he didn't have that great build. And you follow a legend, and then every time you one out of every three times you open up your mouth, you say something stupid, not good, okay? That's the that was the second thing. Here's the third thing about Larry. Even though we all look at Larry as an iconic boxing figure, the general sports fan does not consider him iconic. Okay, the general person does not. Boxing fans do, but but the general sports they consider the following fighters iconic. Okay, Ali, Sugar Ray Robinson, Joe Lewis, uh, Roberto Duran, and Sugar Ray Leonard. Those are iconic fighters. He is not an iconic fighter. And he has attempted over the years to get iconic money for public appearances, okay, at card signing things, and nobody pay, nobody's going to pay him what they oh, – I'm sorry, George Foreman, too. He's another iconic fighter. He's going to get what those guys got, and he just doesn't understand that, mm-hmm. okay? And – He's turned down many opportunities, well, partly because he doesn't need the money, okay? But, you know, he's turned down 
ten and fifteen thousand dollar autograph signings for a day in the meantime because he wants fifty thousand and it's not printable for what what he is. Now, did 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 Ali command those kind of dollars? Did uh Joe Lewis command ten thousand back in the seventies? Yeah, sure he did. But those are iconic figures and he put him in his mind he was iconic. No he was a great boxing champion. He was not iconic. Okay, iconic in baseball would be, uh, you know, you guys understand uh, Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams, Babe Ruth, uh, Yogi Berra. Those are iconic figures in baseball. And Larry Holmes in baseball, he would have been like a Roger Clemens, let's say, not iconic, but a, but a great player. You know, and that's a big difference. And Larry didn't understand his value to society. So I hope you guys understand what I'm referring to. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I think we got Courtney on the line. Courtney wanted to ask you a question as well. Courtney. I did. I did. Hey, thank Mr. Glasser, I, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Uh, you know, I, I know, uh, you know, you, you, you probably get requests like this all the time to be on their various forums and to uh, be on various broadcasts. So we, we are extremely honored uh, to have you on to, uh, to talk boxing uh, with us and uh, basically just to take us down, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, some of the heritage in the sport and the, uh, you know, the, the iconic uh, th- things you've got to be involved in and with, uh, with iconic and great people and great fighters. So that's, uh, that, you know, that, that is not lost on us on the, on the broadcast tonight. And I want to ask a question, but if, sure. if I say anything, I want to give a shout-out to Roy Bennett. And uh, Aaron, I hope you can chop this segment up and get this on in the, uh, the group pound per pound and on the Standing Ape site. I want to give a shout-out to Roy Bennett. Because uh, basically, Mr. Glasser being on the show tonight, that's uh, he connected me and him, and uh, I was able to ask Mr. Glasser if he wanted to come on, and he uh, he accepted, and he said yes, and uh, blessed this. Uh, and Roy, this, uh, and Roy's, a big, Roy's a big contributor to my Facebook and a very classy guy. So thank so, you, Roy. Uh, so sh- shout out, shout out to him, and uh, you know, holding it down in uh, in. Um, in Hong Kong and giving us that uh, that Southeast Asian perspective on the scene out there, and uh, also he is just, just a, a, a great historian and student of the game, and uh, we can't say enough great things about him here on the uh, the broadcast. Uh, Mr. Glacier, though, I, I, I kind of want to hop into some of the dirt though, um, because uh, you know I, I you know I know that uh, you've spoken about the um, about the rift, if you will, that surfaced between Mr. Al Heyman. And Mr. Uh, Mr. DeBella, um, Lou DeBella, um, as far as the falling out over, uh, you know, basically, um, you, you know, the, the, the money that's uh, split, um, especially concerning, uh, you know, uh, Al Heyman's PBC venture and, uh, you know, Al Heyman trying to basically circumvent the, uh, the Muhammad Ali Act by uh, getting um, promoters to go out for him on a, uh, on a piecemeal basis. Um, can you kind of give some inssight into that risk that's developed there and uh well, you know, and, and basically give us some I of the details I haven't followed it since I wrote on Facebook about it um I don't know if Lou is getting paid Lou the bell's getting paid listen this is what it amounts to it's two bad guys somebody was gonna screw somebody because they're neither of them are good quality people okay so it's just a matter of who took advantage of who 
I, to me, it looks like that Al Heyman took advantage of the Bella because what he was paid, he was owed for two shows. Uh, his uh, his front promoter, you know, you know, uh, frontman fees and expenses that Lou had laid out for the two shows, uh, and both the, all those figures for the two shows totaled approximately four hundred thousand dollars. And I don't know if they're working it out right now. I don't know. I don't know if they're talking. Um, I, you know, if I would have known that that was a question that was going to be asked to me tonight, I would have checked into it today with with um, a couple of my uh, quality sources that are around uh, the Bella and around Heyman, um, and I could have found out more. But I haven't really followed up on it. You know, normally when I before I put something up on Facebook and I jump on somebody and tear off their head and shit in their neck for them. Um, <laughs> I normally do a lot of research to make sure all the facts are aligned, and I don't get it from one source. I get it from multiple sources, and I make sure that person didn't hear it from another person, uh, the, the, the same person. So I sort of like got all my oars in the water, and I haven't done anything. But as of when I wrote the article, uh, when I put the post up on Facebook, there was a problem whether it's continuing at this second in time, I can't answer that question. And if I was to tell you I knew any more than I'm telling you today, I'd be lying and I don't lie. So it's one of those situations where at that point in time, there was 400000 owed. Whether it's owed today, I don't have that answer. Okay? I don't know if it's straightened out or not. But it, it was ugly. Um there was a real cold war between the two of them at that time. But you know what? Um, like I said, it's two horrible human beings, but, you know, and it was just a matter of what or what year, I should say, in their case, because they've had a long relationship. Um, I actually made the original relationship between Heyman and uh, Lou DiBella in, in, um, in 2001 when I brought uh, Vernon Forrest um who was co-managed by Charles Watson and Al Heyman. And it was Heyman's, uh, along with Derek Edwards, who was a pro debut guy at the time, uh, mm-hmm. who still fights. He's a super middleweight, um, who was from North Carolina, lives in Arizona. Now, those were Heyman's first two fighters. And Vernon Forrest was uh, IBF uh, world welterweight champ. His contract with main events had expired. And I had been dealing with Charles Watson about it. I brought the fighter uh, and Charles Watson to a meeting in New York City. Heyman got on the phone with Lou. And, you know, we we struck a deal. And it it led to me um, helping put together the first Mosley fight and the second Mosley fight with uh, Vernon Forrest. And then it led to Vernon Forrest uh, getting uh, knocked out by my orga. And then the rematch with Mayorga, uh, what's his name, won again. Um, uh, you know, Mayorga beat Vernon Forrest again. In the meantime, um, I had made that original marriage. I didn't know Al Heyman from a bag of beans back then. Nobody really knew him. Lou didn't even really know him. He just knew he was a concert promoter. And um, Charles Watson announces to me after he's already got his plane tickets, well, I have a partner. And I said, okay, who's your partner? He said, Al Heyman, do you know him? I said, well, I, I don't know who he is. I don't follow, um, you know, you know, uh, black mm-hmm. music acts. And I didn't know him. 
you know. So he says, well, he's a mm-hmm. concert promoter. I said, okay, fine. So whatever. He says, well, he says I says, he's not going to come to New York, he says to me. He's based in L.A., but he'll be on a conference call. I says, yeah, no problem. So I go to New York. Charles Watson goes to New York. Vern is not there. We sit down. Me, Lou, Charles Watson, myself, and Heyman on the phone, we hammer out a deal. Then here's here's where the riff came in with, with Heyman and myself, okay? Heyman was a 1,000% wrong, okay? But he was he's an overbearing bastard, and he was a 1,000% wrong. And Lou got mad at me because he was already sucking up to Heyman, Okay? And I don't know if it was a Playhouse 90 on Lou's part or not, but Lou got mad at me, too. Here's what happened. His um, Vernon mandatory was, Vernon was the IBF champ, and his mandatory was due. Mosley was the WBC champion at the time. He had beaten De La Hoya. We're making the fight on HBO for the small room in the garden at the time, you know, the 5,500-seater. I don't know what they call it. Now they call it with the Paramount you know, whatever they call that room. So in the meantime, um, he, uh, the IBF, who I had a great relationship at the time with, okay, Joe, the late Joe Dwyer was the, um, was the championship chairman uh, and, and, um, and, uh, and the ratings guy and Daryl Peoples and, uh, was the ratings guy and Mary Mahalo. Well, they... My my argument was what it's a unification match would supersede a a mandatory. They says no, we're going to strip them. Okay, well, guys, let me explain this to you. If Vern wins the title, beats Mosley anyways, he uh, he's only got to pay three percent of the sanctioning fee, not six percent. And if he gets mm-hmm. the beat, if he's going to beat Mosley. He's going to become WBC champ, which at that time the green belt meant more than the IBF belt, and it still does to this day. Okay. In the meantime, is what they didn't understand was the IBF was a noose around his neck, taking three percent of a couple million dollars. Number one, which is sixty thousand in round figures. Uh, I don't remember the exact purse. I think it was like two point two million. So it was like sixty-six thousand dollars. Um, the IBF belt would, would have been uh, 66000 alone, okay, 3%. You, you guys understand the math. In the meantime, is he only had to pay the WBC sanction fees. He won the fight, and he walked off with the DC belt. Heyman was mad at me because those guys asked me to intercede with the IBF because I had a great relationship, and I couldn't get it done because they went strictly by the rules because of all the problems that they had with the Bobby Lee thing. So he got mad at me and, oh, and, wow. and belittled me. And, you know, it's something that was totally, it was stupid because it didn't mean anything. It meant nothing. And I told Lou this before it started, let's do the math and let's do the prestige thing. So in the meantime, is that's what, that, that started the rift between Heyman and myself. And that's, and, you know, that's always today. The man, I mean, the, the man's an overbearing guy. He's a micromanager. And um, he he leads his clandestine life like like he's a mafia boss like Carlos Gambino. Everything's a secret. It, it's ridiculous. Man doesn't have an email. Nobody gets a cell phone number except his sham promoters. I mean, his you know front men. I mean, it's ridiculous. 
next, guys. What else you want to talk about now? Hey, hey well, thank, thank you, thank you for giving us some insight on that and, and, del- and delving in that. You know, and the reason I asked is because you know they just announced the uh, the Sean Porter and the um, Keith Thurman fight and announced that Lou DiBella, um was going to be co-promoting Danny, that with uh, Danny Garcia Okay. Well, the, 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 then there's either either one of one of three things happen. Either they straighten out and lose paid, okay, or or he was promising them the four hundred thousand after the show. Now he's going to screw about a six hundred thousand, okay, or or he gave him a partial payment and he's going to pay him the rest after the show, which won't come. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what happened. All I know is I have no information uh, since. I haven't done anything about that situation since I wrote about it originally. And and, and you know what? That information you presented was it was probably a hell of a lot more than where we stood on the subject uh, in our speculation. Yeah. Uh, Rick, I, ha- I got one more follow up question, and uh, it, it, it's real quick. I I know, I know that you are a uh, you are a numbers man, and um, you know for a while you were kind of one of the most hated people on the internet because. You, you know, after uh, after the big fights, you would basically give the figures of the pay-per-view buys and what and what it brought in, and it would be right. significantly lower than what HBO and Showtime were reporting, and people would just they would go for your neck and call you and, and call you a hater. Now I'm not going to ask you to reveal your plug or your source, but I'm you know I, I want. I want to give you a chance, you know, offer you a chance to validate, you know what I'm saying, yourself as, you know, as an insider and as a pundit and not just I'll a hater. How, 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 are you, how are you getting the numbers, Rick? Okay, I'll, I'll explain everything to you, okay? My numbers are so accurate that, that, that Showtime stopped putting out the numbers. <laughs> I call them lying every time. You notice after after a little while, Espinosa said, "Fuck this, we're not releasing numbers. That we don't release numbers." You remember that, guys? I do. Yep. I do. Okay, I was the I was the reason. Here's why: they are publicly held companies. The government determines that when you lie about figures, that will affect the stock of a company by twenty percent or more. It's called corporate fraud. And they were lying by more than twenty percent. Wow. Yasi. Okay. What's that? I said Yasi. You hit it on the head. Right. Okay. So they were lying by more than twenty percent, and I and I put um, Espinosa on the spot and told him that on Twitter, and it's because it was a Twitter only gives you so many spaces to give your message out. Okay, I'm not even on Twitter anymore. I got hacked into by the rumor was Espinosa himself had somebody hack into me, some expert. But it's all right. I can deal with that. I don't I don't I I don't need Twitter. But anyways, here's the deal. Um my my numbers were very accurate. Okay, I, I will tell you my three sources on the numbers, not their names, but what positions they are in. One is a former executive at at in high-level television that is in the consulting business now to all the major networks in the sense that, um, you know, in the premium television business, he does work. They dwell him out work just like people dwell me out work. They dwell him out work. 
and he gets to all those numbers. He's privy to all those numbers. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is, remember this. When these fighters are fighting on pay-per-view, they get so many dollars per home, $8, $5, $2, whatever their deal is. I'm getting the figures that they are telling the fighters, the, the promoters that they're getting back because they're responsible. In other words, if they do a million buys and they get uh, $2 a home um, uh, from, let's say, let's say 500000 more than 500000 they're owed a million dollars. I'm getting those figures from the managers, the promoters. Uh, the, the, don't forget the trainer gets a piece of, of that too. So in other words, in other words, whatever the fighter gets back, he gets ten percent. So somebody's always giving me those figures too, okay? But the but the actual figure on the exact buy rate comes from a gentleman that is was working for several of the networks over the years and went into the consulting business. And he gets all the numbers. He knows every one of them. He knows the ratings on the on the on the HBO shows. The show time, and I'm talking about even non-boxing. Okay, hold on one moment, gentlemen. Okay, I just had to wake my wife up for a moment, guys. So in the meantime, <laughs> uh, and, 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 and she she's she's laughing. I was talking so much I put her to sleep. So anyways. Uh, Anyways, uh, on, a, on a serious note, so I knew from that gentleman, and that gentleman is now uh, still as a consultant, but now he's, he's semi-retired, okay? But I was also getting all the figures down from people that were associated with the fighters. Remember one thing, guys. I supply 50% of all the sparring partners in the world for all the major fights, Okay. Like, gosh, they have just got four sparring partners for me fighting USAC. Okay, I've got guys, I've got 13 guys out sparring right now. I'm sorry, 12 right now. And I uh, and as of July 14th, I had 16 out. Uh, starting August August um, uh, August 6th, I'll have another, like, six or seven guys out sparring. So I get a lot of, I'm involved with these people in the background where I get fees and they tell me, hey, you know, we did this, we did that, we got a certified uh, from a certified public accounting firm. You know, they told us we did a million buys. I know, I know what these buys are. You know, it's my business to know. And you know, they're telling us, you know, these crazy figures. I'll give you a typical example. The biggest lies were the Mayweather fights. The only fights that did well for Mayweather was the Pacquiao fight and the Canelo fight. All the other ones were way, way, way wrong. And even the Pacquiao fight was not what they said it was, like 4.5. It did 3.5, I don't know, 3,275,000 off the top of my head. I can't remember. Like, oh, 3.2, 3.3, three, three, something like that. They lied, they lied about that, too. They just could not help themselves. And you know what? If they want to commit corporate fraud, that's on them. Okay, all I want, all I do is speak the truth, and people, and the people know that I know. Okay, you know, it's it's just it's something that's inbred in me that I always tell the truth. I learned something. My father, 
at a very early age in life, starting at five years old, taught me certain things, and every year he instilled new things in me. And he'd make sure that I, I grasped those things he taught me at age five and age six. If I was succeeded at that, he'd give me more shit to grasp. He mm-hmm. told me at a very early age, he says, son, never lie, even when a lie at the time will serve you better, because in the long run, the truth will serve you better. He also told me, you never promise anything that's not within your power to, for, for, to deliver, okay? And never tell a guy, let me look into it, let me see, let me check it out. No. If you can't do it, tell him up front. Okay? Because if you say yes, I'll look into it, and you don't do it, you're an asshole. You're a jerk-off. And I'm not. And that's what he instilled in me when I was a kid. And I've always lived by those. Don King had a great line about me. He said, Rick Glazer would rather tell the truth, okay, when a lie would serve a lot better, a lot better. That's exactly what he said. And I don't lie to anybody. When anybody talks to me, they know they're getting the unadulterated truth. They might not like it, but they're getting it. That's all there is to it. And and my numbers are very, 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 very factual. That's all there is to it. Well, now, you have any other questions about the pay-per-view numbers, or would you like to move on to something else, gentlemen? <laughs> I'm actually going to move on to something else. Uh, and, Rick, I appreciate your, your raw honesty. Um, you know, and when I, was introducing, um, when I was introducing you to the listeners out there, one of the things that I love about you is the fact that you're just, you know, you're one of those guys uh, that basically you tell it how it is. You know, you call a, you call a spade a spade. Um, you know, because that's in, it's in your DNA. You know what I mean? And, and now you're explaining it, you know, saying that your dad, that's what you taught you. I it comes. Was, my grandfather, my grandfather was born in Germany. He came over here because of Hitler. My father was eight years old. My, fa- my grandfather was a general in the First World War in Hitler, for, for in the First World War before Hitler came to power. Okay, we fled Germany. We're German Jews. My, okay, my father, my grandfather was the same way. My father was the same way, and I'm the same way. We we just you just you come straight, you come forward. When I talk, you don't have to know. You don't even have to think about what's his motive, what's the truth. Is this the truth? No, it's the truth. That's how I deal, and that's why people deal with me. You know, I, you know, you know why do so many people deal with me in boxing and throughout the world? I'll explain to you gentlemen why, okay? Because you always get the truth, and it's the educated truth. I know my business, okay? I'm, I'm a very proud person. I'm not bragging. All I'm saying to you is if somebody can match me for brains in the combination of the sport of boxing and the business of boxing, and they are totally two different things, a combination of the two of them, what they see in the ring, what the fans think, what's going on in the back room, who's hugging who, uh, reading a contract. If somebody can match me for that, that's great. I like to meet that person because pay me for my opinion, okay, and, and, and career paths for fighters. When I do business with people, if you send me a check for supplying you with sparring partners, put the fight together with you, I render you free advice for up to one year. Or to, uh, under, uh, you know, the one year is 12 months, not, not till the end of the year. For 12 complete months, you get free advice. 
Now, if you don't do if you don't do business with me in that regard, because you're, let's say you're an Al Heyman fighter, and you know you're you're at Freddie Roach's gym, you're at Mayweather's gym, you know you're at a gym and they got sparring partners already in the place, okay? And they actually okay, I charge them five hundred dollars an hour, okay? It looks like a lawyer would, no different. And people pay me for my opinion, okay? And because it's well grounded, I've got a lot of experience. I know my business. I never tell a lie. There's no reason for it. One time years ago, a woman said to me something, and I told her what the truth was back. I can't tell you what I said and what she said, but I told the truth back. She said, did you really have to tell me the truth? I said, absolutely. And, and, and the woman that fixed us up, the girl at the time, fixed us up, called me up and says, why did you say that? Because she said something that was completely wrong, and I wanted to, you know, Tell what set her straight in the facts. So it's just it's in my nature. Absolutely. So what's the, what's the next question you want to ask? Next question. I answer about. I actually I want to find out who do you who's your favorite boxer right now, and number two, yeah, you, know, you know, in uh, in light of the recent news, obviously Canelo versus Triple G second fight. Who do you have winning that fight? Well, it's way too early because I'm, I don't have any, you know, I'm not talking to any sparring partners. I haven't even, you know, got into some serious sparring yet. I I really tend not to do that until after the weigh-in, uh, a normal situation. But I, I tend to like Canelo um, because I think the other guy is really aging. Uh, and, I mean, I mean, Bonner's hit him three or four times with good shots. And he can't break a grape. And, 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 you know, he hadn't fought in two years, and he hit him with some good shots. And I just think he's going to be easier, easier to reach, uh, more wear and tear, two more training camps. And you know what? I, I think it's going to be a change in the guard. You know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Everybody thought that so many people thought that what's-his-name got robbed the last time, uh, GGG. I thought it was a draw. I clearly mm-hmm. scored six rounds apiece for both guys. I, I mean, clearly. I mean, I could listen. To me, one guy clearly won six rounds, and the other guy clearly won six. So there was no doubt that when a round was over, who won the round. It was very clear who won each round. Okay, I mean, Canelo landed some great body shots. Okay, he did what he had to. Did he in the rounds that he lose? Did he look bad? He did, but he did win six rounds. And and people tend to forget this when it comes to scoring and boxing. Okay, and, and this bothers me a lot. Okay, and this is what it is: a fight is in twelve three-minute segments. It doesn't matter if a guy got bombed in the first round without getting knocked out, without getting knocked out, but he was played with. He wins ten nine. Okay, by the time let's say the fifth round rolls around, okay. And the other guy's got his number a little bit more, and the gap's closing up. The other guy starts to win the rounds close, close, not as much as he won the early rounds, the other guy, but they count all the same unless there's a knockdown, unless there's a uh, for a point uh, for a, a point deduction for a knockdown, a point deduction for a foul, okay, uh, intentional or unintentional, okay? It's all even in the end. And here's what really screws people up. When they listen to those stupid announcers that don't know what they're watching, okay? 
because with the, what most of those guys know about professional boxing, you could write out a match for us to cover a large old crayon. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the truth. Now, here's why the punch stats threw everybody up. Okay? Here's why. Let's say somebody jumps out in the first four rounds, five rounds to a big lead, okay, and he's outlanding the guy three to one, which happens a lot. But the other guy's closing the gap, closing the gap. So at the end of the round, you, you tally up where the, where, where the winner of the actual rounds was the guy who threw less punches because when they add up the when they add up the tally at the end of a fight, they are counting it per round and they're multiplying and they're adding them all up. Okay, where the guy who won the, like the last portion of the fight, the last like say seven rounds, he may have won the fight, but not as much. He may have won those rounds, but didn't land as many punches over the other guy compared to what the other guy landed over him in the first five rounds. Does this make sense exactly. to you guys? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Well, this is confusing. That's confusing the fans. The other thing that's confusing the fans is what those stupid announcers say. Okay? Believe you me, nine out of ten times they're wrong. Okay? Just like the Horn Pacquiao fight. Okay? I love Teddy Atlas. Okay? Teddy Atlas, since I got the cancer, he calls me, texts me. He, all the time, Rip, how are you doing, going on? Can my foundation help you? He's been a total gentleman, okay, and a real caring guy, which is something maybe we don't see on TV out of him, when, when he was on TV, I should say, okay? But he scored that Pacquiao fight, okay, for Pacquiao. I scored it for Horn, okay? I thought Horn carried the fight. Now, when the problem was in the fight, when Horn lost rounds, he got the shit beat out of him. Okay? But when Horn won rounds, he barely won them by a little. Does this make sense now? Correct. Okay. Yeah. At the end of the fight, I thought that uh, Pacquiao lost the fight 6-5-1. Okay? I gave it to Horn, 6-5-1. Did Horn get destroyed in the ninth round? I mean, shit, you could have stopped it in the ninth round, and nobody would have said a word. But Horn that survived on to win the last three rounds of the fight. Okay? What I'm saying to you guys is, is the problem is there's too many opinions being generated between the morons on TV, and believe me, Max is a moron, Lampley's a moron. Uh, I love... I love uh, Harold Letterman, but his scores sometimes are like, what did he watch? Even though I love Harold. <laughs> oh, God, they are. Right. Like, oh, my God, what did he watch? Okay. And and then they got guys like Andre Ward, Roy Jones. Bernal. Who said these guys could score a fight? Who, who died and left these guys in control of scoring fights? They're confusing the fans. Okay, they don't know what they're watching. Okay, just because a guy was a great fighter, uh, a great fighter, a legendary fighter, Roy Jones is legendary, he's not iconic. But just because a guy was a great fighter doesn't make him a judge. Billy Costello was a world boxing champion, and he was a horrible, they rest in peace, he was a horrible judge. Okay, 
just because uh, Carlos Ortiz was the, was a great junior uh, uh, lightweight world champion in the Hall of Fame, he couldn't train a dog to piss on a fire hydrant. Okay, there's no correlation there. There are totally two different. I know one thing. Montel Griffin jumps on me all the time on Facebook. Oh, you never had gloves? I said yes, I did winter gloves. Okay, and and, and he, said, well, how do you know you never had gloves? I said, what does that? There's no correlation there. There's no correlation there. Don Turner. Great trainer, right, gentlemen? Everybody says John Turner's a great trainer. Did you ever say where he wasn't? Right? He was three and seven as a professional boxer. Okay? Emmanuel Stewart was an amateur. Lou Dubin never had, he was never a fighter. There's no correlation there. Okay? Freddie Roach, do you know what, do you know what the great legendary uh, matchmaker Teddy Brenner used to call Freddie Roach? Face first, Freddie. But the guy is a trainer preaches defense. They used to call face first, Freddie. Now come on. Okay, look at Freddie's record as a fighter. Correlation between being a great fighter and knowing what you're watching, and being a not a good fighter and being a great trainer. There's no correlation at all. My my knowledge is, and I'm not bragging. I'm just stating a fact. My knowledge of the science of boxing for not ever walking into a boxing gym before 1990, okay, my, my knowledge of boxing in the science of the game is uncanny. And that's quoting Emmanuel Stewart, Angel Dundee, may, may they rest in peace, and other people that have been around, including Roger Mayweather. And Roger Mayweather's favorite line, he don't know shit about boxing. He says, tells everybody, well, now he's not telling anybody too much because he's got dementia. But he always told everybody, Rick Glazer knows boxing, okay? And I know boxing, okay? And I know what I'm watching. Nobody's going to convince me otherwise. And, and these guys put these opinions in people's heads, and they're just confusing the general public. That's why people go away with when a guy like Teddy, who I love dearly, is emphatic that the Pacquiao was robbed. Do you guys really feel Pacquiao was robbed or he lost? A, now, even if you thought Pacquiao won the fight, it was close enough that you, you're saying to yourself, well, you know, I could see that one won. It was real close. It wasn't a robbery. could have been a bad decision in your mind. Yeah, but it wasn't a robbery. Rick, I had to watch it a second time. I had to watch it a second time, and I agree. I agree with you. The first time I did think it was a robbery, and then when I watched it a second time and the third time, I'm like, "Wow, Pacquiao did lose this fight." Thank you. Okay, now I agree with you. what 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 is a robbery? This is a robbery. You ready? A robbery is what happened last week on Showbox when that Thomas Matisse got the decision over that the Armenian fellow. Okay, that was a robbery. Did you guys see that fight? Yep, yep. And I, you know, and, and you know, I've been telling people that for years. Just because, a, you know, a fight doesn't go the way you envisioned it or you would have saw it, doesn't make it a robbery. Sometimes there's just differences of opinion. Exactly. In other words, here's a robbery. You ready? Okay. Lennox Lewis and Holyfield fight number one was not a robbery. Because they didn't give it to Holyfield. They called it a draw. Okay? Now, 
the Chavez-Whitaker fight wasn't a robbery because they, they called it a draw. Okay, that's not a robbery. Robbery is when there's a reverse decision of what you thought it was. So, in other words, if you thought Chavez, if you thought Whitaker won and they gave it to Chavez or, or they would give it to Holyfield instead of Lewis, that's a robbery. When you walked away from the draw, it's like kissing your sister. Jesus, I just thought about that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't say that. So, anyway, in the meantime is, guess what, guys? That's not a robbery. Matisse last week, that Thomas Matisse, that was a robbery. Okay, that the, the one guy won maybe one round, Thomas Matisse. He was on the deck once. He was wobbled a bunch of times. That was a robbery. Okay? No ifs, ands, or buts about that one. Okay? Because the wrong because the wrong guy won. But you can't call it a robbery. You cannot call a fight a robbery when, when, there's a, when, when it's a draw. That's not a robbery. So... Continue, gentlemen. Next question. Hello? Oh, we're here, we're here. Yeah, so, Rick, okay. um, yep. my, the second part of my question um, after the uh, Triple G Canelo thing is, right now, who do you think is the best boxer in the business that's currently, uh, that's currently fighting? Well, I would say two guys, okay, because I think they're dead even. And, I, and I'll tell you who the third one is. I think the first two guys, in no particular order, and it's a, to me it's a draw, is, is uh, Lomachenko and Loma and uh, Crawford, Terrence Crawford. I would say Mikey Garcia is third, and I would say Spence is probably fourth right now. Uh, Anui is up there uh, highly. Usak after the other night obviously would be highly up there. But, you know, I would say by all the people that they've beaten so far, um, you know, all the quality guys, both guys have beaten, especially Loma. Um, you know, um, I would say Loma and uh, Crawford are two, uh, two of the best. I think Garcia's third. You know, I can't see Garcia fighting uh, Spence. Um, I just can't. He says he, he, he talks out of both sides of his mouth. He says 40's too big for him. He's going back down to 35. But now he wants to fight Spence. Wait, wait, who's a big thick 47? We're another year, won't be able to make 47, it'll be in 54. Hey, listen, every time I told a reporter the other day, every time Mikey hears he opens up his mouth, I get confused. That dude's all over the place. He's all over the place, marketing every fight. Right, he just, listen, what he's doing, he's just keeping his name out there. In between fights, he's being a self-promoter, but he's not going about it the right way. What he should be saying is, listen, he says, Spence is a great fighter, and I hope to be in 47. I hope he's still in 47. When I get there, I'd love to fight him eventually. Not I'm going to fight him in December, and the fight doesn't come off, then he looks like a jerk. Come on, guys. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you don't have to say that. You know, here's another thing that bothers me, Okay. And this, this bothers me because it's a little goofy, but you guys will appreciate this part, okay? And I, and I think you will. How come we insult each other over here, our fighters, but over in England uh, and over in, let's say, you know, all those countries over, all the U.K. and Denmark, they talk about the other fighter in glowing terms. Oh, he's a great fighter. He's a wonderful guy. He's a great champion. Over here, they insult each other. 
Okay? I mean, Calzaghe fought Kessler. Kessler was a wonderful guy before the fight, and, and, and Calzaghe was a wonderful guy before. And after the fight, they were both still wonderful. Why do we insult each other over here? Every, oh, he can't fight. He sucks. I'll knock his head off. I'll shit in his neck. I'll steal his lunch. I mean, come on, guys. And what's mm. wrong with these people? Okay, over here, we have a bad attitude towards one another of hostility outside the ring. And I don't know if they're doing it for self-preservation to pump themselves up. I don't know what they're doing it for, but you don't have that in other countries. You, I mean, you don't have you didn't have Lenny, Lenny Lewis fought over here, was raised in Canada. He doesn't talk like that. These fighters today, this guy's going to tear this guy's head off. I'm going to knock this guy dead. He sucks. He can't fight. I mean, guys, come on. Seriously. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, listen, it, it, it's crazy. I definitely, you know def- definitely agree with you. But, I, you know, I would attribute. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I would attribute that though to I, I, I put that on us as Americans because you know it, we 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 don't view boxing with the same reverence as they do in Europe and you know as they do in other countries. In that it truly, you know, it truly is a gentleman's sport. That's you know, yeah, but, along the way, that's been lost in America. Yeah, and, you know, and, I, and I'm sad that that's what that's what sells. That you know, boxing as an ungentlemanly endeavor is what sells in America, and that's what boxers play up to. Okay, I'm sure none of you guys watch NASCAR. Okay, but in NASCAR, comes down to the last lap, last lap or two, you know, all all, all bets are off. And they go for it. One bumps the guy in the back, shoots him out of the groove, goes under him, he wins the race. Sometimes they crash, whatever. When it's all said and done, next week they're racing again, they're laughing with one another. Okay? It, it, it's part of the uh, sport. They're not insulting one another. Okay? I mean, and they're going 200 miles an hour. These guys, I don't know what it is about American boxers, but they are not a great example. Uh, you know, they asked Aaron Judge one day about the prior generation of steroid users before he got the baseball. You know what he said to me? You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? He said to me, what I heard him come out of his mouth, well, you know, I was just a fan back then. I was too young to really realize what was going on. And, you know, that was then. This is now. And he just blatantly moved away from it. He really didn't answer the question. Because it's a class and dignity. Why are, aren't boxers like this? They got to keep insulting people? For what? For what? Okay? They're competitors. They're in the ring. They're both trying to make a living. Okay? Okay? He's a great champion. I'm happy to be in the ring with him. I hope to beat him. Okay? I hope I have what it takes to beat him because he is a great champion. They don't say that. Oh, he sucks. I'm going to beat him. No, don't put your competition down. Make yourself look better. Make yourself the other guy look bigger. Make the fight look bigger. But no, they insult each other. Ridiculous, retarded. And the promoters allow them to do it. That's the funny part. They think that all this stuff's going to stir business up. No, it makes everybody look like child, like child's play, number one. Number two is if he's going to tear his head off and shit in his neck, what do I need to watch the fight for? We know he's going to win. Okay, I don't know you to know. He's that much better than the other guy. Look how confident he is. You've got to talk about the other fighters being great. And then after the fight's over, hey, listen, I won a tough fight. I beat a great fighter, a great guy, a great man, and I'm moving forward. Next. 
Okay? Well, so as, as Samuel Peter goes, who next? Who next? So, <laughs> so Rick, unfortunately, we are running out of time. This has been absolutely fantastic. We got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of perspective from you. Uh, obviously, somebody who's been in the, in the business for a long time. We really wholeheartedly appreciate you going on a show. And we hope to have you back soon again, if you'd like. I mean, we do appreciate everything you, you're doing. And, um, you know, we want to have you back. And I, I think that Courtney will probably coordinate with you again in the future to come back. But thank you so much, um, guys. Yeah. Well, bit, you know, a round of applause for Rick. Again. I love to be on your show again. You guys ask some great questions. If I would have known uh, that you guys would ask me that question about the status of the Bella and what's his name, since I wrote, since I put that up on Facebook, I, 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 I would have done some research today, yesterday and today. I'm sorry I didn't know. But, uh, listen, the fact that he's uh, – the fact that uh, – He's involved with that show. Oh, wonderful! Okay, it'll be, it'll 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 give them guys a chance to fuck fuck themselves up with each other again. That's all I got to say. <laughs> so once again, Rick, uh, on behalf of everybody yep. in the Standing Eight podcast and the uh, boxing um, pound for pound group on Facebook, we want to thank you so much, and we hope to hear from you soon again. All right, have a great can night, you guys. Another good show. Can you do me one favor? Hang, you can Absolutely. hang the interview up on, the, on my Facebook, okay? Absolutely. We're going to do that for you. We promise that. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, have a wonderful evening. Anytime you guys like to do this again, love to do it. Enjoy. Bye-bye now. Be blessed, man. Thank you. Well, that concludes the 17th episode. Till next time. Next episode will be with Clarissa Shields.